Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is a remix episode. I spoke with four prominent computer scientists who had their feet in both academia and in industry. I asked them to compare their experiences between these two sectors. Some of you may be going through similar dilemmas. Three of uh, our four computer scientists spent significant time in one sector before moving to the other either in academia, then to industry, or industry, then to academia. The fourth is an academic who believes graduate students should also be entrepreneurial. The four people I spoke with are Rico Malwar, former director of Microsoft Research Labs, then Dilma Da Silva, professor of computer science at Texas A&M University, then Rodrigo Fonseca, principal researcher at Microsoft, and finally, Fadil Adib, professor at MIT. You can find the full interviews with these computer scientists in episodes 5 through episode 9 and also episode 11 of the podcast. First up is Rico Malvar, member of the National Academy of Engineering, a distinguished engineer at Microsoft and former director of Microsoft Research Labs. Rico was previously also a professor in Brazil before he moved to the US and before he moved to Microsoft. After finishing his MSc from Universidad Federal do Rio de Janeiro in 1979, Rico immediately became a professor. Yes, this is before he did his PhD. This was common in Brazil back in those days. Here's Rico talking about it. A fun thing was the very first class that I was supposed to teach when I was hired. It was March of 1979. I just started and I say, okay, Rico, you're gonna teach base electronics. You know electronics well, should be easy for you. I say, oh, of course. But a month before it started, a professor left, and that professor was scheduled to teach advanced uh, digital sequential machine design, which was a final year digital, not analog circuit. And they said, ooh, Rico, we lost the, the, the professor to teach that. And, and, and you learned something along those lines, because we saw you study that at, 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 during our master's. Can you teach that? And I said, I'll do my best, but you know, Funny thing, I get into the class, the first day of class, I realize I look at the roster, I look at the kids, and this is like final year, right? I was the youngest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a kind of a funny way to start, but it, it worked out all right. So I learned with them and they were patient with me. <laughs> then I asked Rico Malvar why he moved from Brazil Academia in 1993 to industry in the US. You're transitioning from, from academia to industry, but also you're coming back to the US a second time. Right. Uh, let's talk about the first one. So both of your parents were uh, professors. And so uh, what was your internal 
thinking and moving away from academia? You know, as I was mentioning, I feel like I'm always an engineer first and a researcher later, and I am a hacker and tinker. I just finished assembling my newest computer here, which, you know, it's a Dell computer, but I open it up, put new parts and stuff like that. So I still like to <laughs> to fiddle with, with, with things. And I always felt that it's a different kind of impact that you can have in, in industry. And I have felt if I stayed in academia, I could have more impact, driving more interesting research, graduating good kids and helping their education and all of that. Those are all wonderful things, but I would miss on on the opportunity to build things as, as real products. And, and I wanted to do that. So that's why I decided to make the switch because I figure if this doesn't work, I'll switch back to academia and hopefully they'll take me back. <laughs> Next up is Dilma Da Silva, professor at Texas A&M in computer science and she's also co-founder of Latinas in Computing. She also worked in IBM Research for over 10 years, and before that was a professor in Brazil. And with Dilma da Silva, I talked about first moving from Brazilian academia to a U.S. research lab in 2000, and then moving from industry back to academia in 2014. Yeah, so what happened is that a lot of talent was leaving. That is 99. They were leaving the research labs, all of them, in going and founding startups. So the research labs were actually looking at the applications coming through the internet. This is crazy. I tell like, why did I do that? Um, uh, so, and after I did get an interview offer, then I talked to the many of people from my network that I knew they were in those companies in order to better prepare for the interview and also to, to understand what should I pay attention to. And, uh, yeah, so, but I came to back to the United States to IBM research, uh, thinking I was going to stay a couple of years and go back to Brazil. And, uh, I thought I was going to really miss the teaching. And, uh, interesting, I love teaching, but I did not miss the teaching. I think I was still so involved in, uh, giving presentations. I become this go-to person that, uh, if uh, a senior VP, like, what is this Zen and KVM virtualization thing? Can someone give me a 15-minute presentation? And I really enjoyed doing those kinds. So I guess I was just uh, teaching different people uh, without having to grade anyone. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't miss that. And, uh, and the jobs were interesting. So I did release my position uh, at uh, the university so that they could hire someone else. And uh, it stayed longer. Around the mid-2010s, you have spent um, something like a decade and a half in, uh, in industry, and then you moved back to academia to become the mm -hmm. head of the department at Texas A&M, the computer science and engineering department. Did you just grow tired of industry, or was it a, a new opportunity in academia that attracted you and made you make the move back? Oh, I thought I always at some point go back to uh, academia because the mission resonates well with me. So I'm someone that at any given day, I did not know the value of the stock, Qualcomm or IBM at all. And I could see that my colleagues all knew. Okay. And I just, of course, I want to do better for the company, but this, you know, overwhelming goal to make it perform better on the market. Uh, was not something driving me. Of course, we know technology helps people and things like that. But again, in terms of technology health 
uh, helps people. If that's what I want to do, yes, it's great to be on a place where you take it to market, but the considerations on taking to market are complex, as they should be. The company has a mandate to the board of directors and everything. It's not companies have to go after protecting their assets. It's, it's exactly doing the right thing. But for me, it was really hard to, to embrace uh, that in the same way about getting the, you know, this future proofing that we do when we work in academia, which is forming the, the next generation of researchers is not as much about the results we do today, although they matter, but it's also that you're training people. The next voice is of Rodrigo Fonseca, principal researcher at Microsoft Research. He was formerly a professor at Brown University. He is originally from Brazil. Rodrigo was not sure when he got his PhD in 2008 whether he wanted to go into academia or industry. He went to academia first and then industry later. Here he talks about his decision point right after his PhD. So returning to your timeline, so you finish your PhD at Berkeley in 2008 and then you mm-hmm. spend uh, a year at Yahoo Labs as a postdoc. It sounds like even back then you were considering industry as an option. The option of going to industry as a career never left your mind, it sounds like. Is that a correct thought? Or did you already want to become a faculty member by the time you finished at Berkeley? No, nothing so easy, right? No, I I again came to the same uh, question when I finished Berkeley. I wasn't set that I wanted to to become a faculty member. And I did apply to universities and to industry research and even to a couple of startups. And I got a a couple of offers from each camp. I I got an offer from Google back in 2008. I got, uh, and in the end I was was torn between Brown and Meraki. And which later got acquired by Cisco. Meraki at the time had about 10 people. You always think back, right? When you, when you, like five years later, when Meraki was acquired by Cisco for over a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, let, let me put it this way. I, I was at an STI one year uh, after Meraki had been acquired and Meraki was one of the sponsors for the conference. And so there was this, a uh, person from HR, like trying to actively recruit recruit people for Meraki, right? And then um, and she approached me. Oh, so uh, you should explore opportunities with Meraki. We're doing really interesting things, uh, and now we have, you know, even more potential for growth. And then I I, I told her, yeah, um, I already had an offer for for Meraki once, back in two thousand and eight, and she was like, oh. <laughs> Okay. Next, you'll hear MIT professor Fadil Adib. He grew up in Lebanon. He describes a surprising and rather heart-stopping experience of demoing his research project while he was a grad student at MIT to President Obama in the White House. Take a listen. You've had uh, significant success with commercializing some of your research results. Uh, nowadays, um, even grad students, as when they're in their PhD programs, sometimes uh, they think of, oh, you know, should I open source this? Should I spend the extra amount of energy and effort and time 
on making this code, you know, less research code and like more open source code. And then of course, as faculty members, we already have a lot of very busy lives teaching and doing research and then doing entrepreneurial activities is an even higher overhead on that. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, um, you know, how you managed uh, the commercialization and entrepreneurialization of your technologies. Yeah. So one thing to keep, the one thing that I'm thinking about always is we're not publishing for just for the sake of getting papers. In fact, we spend so, in systems, we spend so much time building a system. Usually what about... Um, I mean, it could be anywhere between at least six months, really on the short end, but more of the most of the time, it's at least a year. It's of the order of a year and a half, right? Building a system. Do you really want that thing that you built to be a paper that maybe someone's gonna pick up, maybe someone's gonna do something with it, or do you want, or do you want it to have a lot of impact? This year and a half that you spent on something, do you want it to try to have uh, impact so it can change the world? Why did you do this in the first place? So for me, when I was doing my PhD, um, I so first off, I had to build the thing to make it actually work. And people did not believe that it worked. So we had to build a demo and have people come over. And I'm, I was a bit entrepreneurial in nature. So I already, I started thinking and telling my advisor, look, we need to start a company based on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she also believed uh, in that as well. And so we spent a lot of time refining it and showing it to people and every time improving it. And in fact, when I was doing my job interviews, I took my device to each of my 16 interviews and every single time I tested it live. And so people could really like falsify me. If it's not, we are, if you think this is not gonna work, you're gonna be able to see it there that it's not working. And for me, that was important. It was important to show, let people believe that it is actually working in this environment where there's so many other people and I'm trying to sort of uh, do the sensing. Did it work uh, every one of those 16 times? It did. It did, actually. I mean, it worked in the in the White House when he demoed it to President Obama. So it should work after. We wouldn't have showed it back then. Uh, and that's yet another story, uh, actually, that I'd be happy to, to share. Um, yeah, please, please, please talk about that experience, too. Yes. So what happened is the whole the whole uh, way in which in, in which we were invited to the White House is um, we were I was we were interested in commercializing the technology. We participated. MIT has this entrepreneurial entrepreneurial competition. The first year we participated, we made it only to the semifinals. The second year we made it to the finals, hmm. and so we were picked up by this group that nominated us to go to the White House, and we had to do a, a demo. And we were not sure if we were going to do it to to President Obama at the time. Hmm. Um, and so we take uh, we take our device, we fly to DC, we set it up uh, the the day before in the hotel in the hotel lobby, and uh, sort of one of the people I was working with was like, "Oh, it feels like Mission Impossible, like you're setting up, and then tomorrow we're going to the White House." Anyway, then we go in, and when you go to the White House, you have to go through so many different layers of security, and the dogs really sniffed out the wires, like they pulled it apart. It's a research prototype. <laughs> Yeah. So we go in, we set it up, it's not working. Of course it's not working, like the dogs really pulled it apart. And so we have about three hours before someone steps in and it could be the president. And everybody starts and I'm like, it works. I know it works. I've tested it and I know it works. So I keep sort of trying to debug it and trying all the knobs that I know how to debug. It's like, there's two hours left, it's not working. There's one hour left, There's not. it's not working. There's like 30 minutes left, it's not working. And about 10 minutes before... 
uh, uh, people start walking in is when it starts working and I tested it and I tested it a few times. It's just a bunch of loose connections mm. at the time that I really need to find where all of these are. So it's like research. You just have to do it in three hours. Uh, and then it worked well, and he was actually quite surprised that it worked uh, um, that it worked that well. Uh, where I, I was actually the subject of the demo, and I showed that this wireless device that is in there was could monitor my breathing and heart rate without touching my body. Mm. Um, and so I was not very concerned. I mean, I knew if it didn't work, I would know how to make it work without having to change anything in it. So every whenever I had an interview, I would go in the morning, I would test it out. In that setup, I would just make sure that it is working and then I would uh, sort of uh, leave it there. And to be honest, even if it doesn't work that well, people know it's a research prototype that you're trying to demo in real uh, in real life. And that's what I tell my students now. So we now invent every single project that we're thinking about. Some, I mean, a lot of our projects are moonshot ideas. So our, but eventually we want it to have impact. So we try a crazy idea. If it works, great. Uh, if um, it doesn't work, we try to pivot quickly, but then we build on it. So we ha we write the paper, but then we're building this demo. We also create a video about it because we're building these physical things. And so we usually also create videos about it that can help us talk about it. And then we this building good work allows us to build on top of it. One of the hardest things in research is, do you build something and are you able to build yet another system on top of it? And if you build a really robust system, then you are able to build on top of it. And sometimes we open source our code. Like for example, a lot of our code on Ocean IoT, uh, we are open sourcing all of that because there's so much scientific value in it. And we did. We don't just open source the code. We also open source the schematics. We also write step-by-step -step tutorials because people need to know. I mean, this is interdisciplinary work. People are coming from different backgrounds to try to build it. If we want our work to have impact and go beyond just a paper, um, how do you do that? The way is you need to really push it all the way, uh, wherever that is. I mean, sometimes it could be through deployment. Uh, maybe not every paper is gonna is gonna do that, but we strive to do that with every paper because really that's what maximizes the impact. And sometimes people might think that oh, what matters is the number of papers, or uh, what matters is the the number of citations. The number of citations might be a good metric. The number of papers is never a good metric. Uh, it's, I mean, if someone has, I don't know, 80 papers versus 100 papers or 20 papers, what I care about in is in what way have these people changed the world? Uh, that's what matters. Yeah, that's very beautifully put. And, and an almost heart-stopping experience in the White House, but it seemed like it worked out in the end. Um, I guess the, the my takeaways from that experience were, be prepared if you're doing a live demo of any kind be prepared uh, well ahead of time uh, but then also uh, kind of know your system in depth so that you're confident that if something goes wrong you can you have a plan b and a plan c absolutely we finish today's show by listening to a comparison of the work cultures between industry in the u.s east coast and industry in the u.s west coast dilma da silva worked in ibm research near new york and then Qualcomm in Silicon Valley before she became a professor at Texas A&M. She's up next. East Coast versus West Coast. Dilma da Silva moved from IBM Research near New York City, East Coast, to Qualcomm in the West Coast in the 2010s, early 2010s. Here she talks about comparing the East Coast and the West Coast work cultures and her famous Starbucks test. 
For me, when I went to Starbucks to do reviewing papers at Starbucks, everyone who came to talk to me, they thought I was a venture capitalist because I'm older and they would try to tell me, uh, even, you know, they have a solution even for the way that I had my computer and my iPad together when I was working. And uh, I preferred when I was in New York City and the person who talked to me at Starbucks was, uh, uh, okay, often a writer, but often also a nurse, uh, a teacher. Or, so I, <laughs> I, I love us computing, but the concentration in Silicon Valley was too high for me. So I said, oh, I should move geographically. And that's when I um, decided to look at the academic uh, positions. Very interesting that Starbucks is an interesting litmus test of what the social um, circle is. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah. So that's also a consequence of living in small apartments. So notice here, I don't go to Starbucks to review my papers. My I can vary by staying in very different parts of my house. But in New York, I lived in a, in a in very small apartment. In Mountain View, I lived in a very small apartment. So it was, okay, I have to spend six hours reviewing papers. I'm going to Starbucks. And here's Rico Malwar, who moved from Pichatel in the U.S. East Coast to Microsoft in 1997. He compares the two coasts. Here at Microsoft, I mean, many years ago, but to this day, you can go to a meeting where you're discussing, for example, technologies where you want a patent or license or something, and there will be some lawyers in the meeting. And some of those lawyers will be in shorts and very colored shirts. Um, typically, if you are in the same meeting in the East Coast, they're all in suits. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, not not much really. There is that, you know, that thing, okay, who has the best schools? Is Stanford the best school in engineering or is it MIT or they're all very good. I don't think you can you can tell one from the other. They have the similar um intensity, they have the similar let's drive opportunities for startups and, and things like that. There I, I found very similar things in, in the community here in the in the West Coast versus the East Coast. It's more the, the culture and the societies. People here in the West Coast seem to be a little more relaxed and laid back than in the East Coast. Unless you go down in the east, if you go to the southeast like Miami, then it flips. <laughs> In fact, you go to Miami, you're going to bounce on, on many, many Brazilians because Brazilians love to go to Miami. If you haven't already done so, please listen to the previous segments in the show. We covered Yugoslavia in episodes 1 through 4, Brazil in episodes 5 through 8, the Middle East in episodes 9 through 12, U.S. Virgin Islands in episode 13, and China in episode 14, and several anonymous narrators featured in episode 15. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes from the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast as we visit other parts of the world. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. <laughs>